Might be some coffee making sounds here. A drip. Coffee making drip. Drip's another one of those words that's perfect. And I don't feel that way about every word. It's not just the fact that I've been conditioned to associate certain sounds with certain actions or functions or objects. It's not just that. I mean, that does happen. Like, if you've heard a certain object called a certain name, you know, you eventually kind of think, like, well, that's a good name for it because that's the only name I know for it. But sometimes it's actually far, <laughs> it's actually far better than that. You know, like drip, like a drip truly sounds like a drip. Doesn't even, not phonetically, not like the word drip is what a drip actually sounds like. But pretty, it seems to work. I mean, I think the way I would put that is drip is the, fer the perfect description of that. Drop too, drip and drop. The, the related words. My twin children. Drip and drop. Dwip. I'm spilling coffee like I do every day. This is something I never learn. I always try to fill the cup because I do drip coffee. I never learn. And I always overflow. I'm always, I don't know, what is that? I'm always trying to get it as close to the top as possible. I feel... For every filter with coffee, I pour two cups, and I imagine—I don't know the—I don't know—I don't know coffee science. Imagine that guy. I'm sure there's some guy out there who's like, "I'm the coffee scientist." Some guy with a YouTube channel. I'm the coffee scientist. I review coffee, but I'm not a coffee scientist. But I imagine if I if I pour two cups of coffee for every one, you know, filterful, what we call a filterful, I imagine the second cup is weaker, right? I don't know. I assume. I assume more of the caffeine goes into that first one. But I never learn. I, it's a bad habit of mine. One of just, and, and I'm annoyed every time. Every single time. That copy, copy, that, that coffee cup overflows. I, I'm like offended. As if somebody other than me had control over that. Oh my God, I can't, I cannot believe, and I, the sheer number of times, I mean, I'm not talking something that happens once a week. I mean, I think it happens multiple times a week. And to be fair, I'm looking at that cup now, and it is perfectly, it is as close to the top. Like, now that I've cleaned it up a little bit, it is as close to the top as you could possibly want it. But it's not a fair win, because it's as close to the top as you can get, but it overflowed. So it doesn't count. I don't get a win. I don't get a W. Because... It overflowed. So if it overflows, of course, if it overflows, of course, it's going to be near the top. That'd be a good competition. People having to get coffee as close to the using drip coffee, having to get as close to the top of the co coffee cup as possible without overflowing. Better than a hot dog eating contest. Hot dog eating contests are hot dog eating contests are gross and old timey. We do drip coffee. That sounds awful, too. You can imagine the freaking, like, baristas. Because it's only good if you don't include baristas. It's only good. That competition, the one where you try to, using drip coffee, get as close to the top of the coffee as possible, top of the cup as possible without overflowing, that's only cool if it has nothing to do with, like, hip baristas and... Uh, craft coffee has nothing to do with that just like hot dog eating contests have nothing to do with gourmet hot dogs hot dog culture as someone who drinks tons of coffee and and developed my coffee drinking later in life really i didn't start drinking coffee till i was probably in my late 20s later in life my late 20s no but still i, I never drank any coffee before that ever um, 
I hate the idea of coffee culture. Like, yeah, there's good coffee and bad coffee, but just coffee culture. Like, you guys took the worst parts of wine culture. You, you, you took the worst parts of, you know, winos, whatever you call those people, wine snobs. And you decided that you wanted to apply that to coffee. Like, are you, are you stupid? Anyway, though, today, feeling good. I, I pulled an all-nighter the other night, got a lot of work done. friend was helping me. I mean, just did some monumental work around the house that uh, had needed to be done for a long time. That it wasn't even on my agenda, but it's great when a friend just pushes you. It just does it and does a lot of the work. It's crazy. Um, you know, it's funny. uh I meditated this morning, meditation journal. I meditated this morning. Um, I voted. That's what it's like. When, whenever I say I meditated this morning, I feel like even though it's, it's I, I'm not trying to signal, oh, hey, do you know I meditate? I meditate, knock, 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 you know I meditate. Even though I'm not trying to signal that at all, I feel like I might as well have put it an I voted sticker on. I voted. I meditated. I did my part. But the, inter the interesting thing about meditation since having Batty is he knows when I'm going to do it and he loves it. And to be fair, his previous owner's mom, who he lived with for a while, meditates and he would meditate with her. So I'm, it's kind of incredible that I'm not the first person Batty's meditated with. But, it, but that wasn't like a habit. That wasn't something that regularly happened. But with... Uh, with me, like what's interesting is it's usually if I do it, you know, cause I've, I've gotten my discipline with, with meditation hasn't been as good as it used to be. And that said, it's still fine. I said, it's still fine. Um, but it's not as strict as it used to be. I guess it's, you could say, but still I do it as often as I can. And, you know, ideally first thing in the morning, just when you start your day and, What's interesting, though, it's not just a schedule thing. Because if I do it at different times of the day, Batty also knows that's what I'm going to do. And he runs upstairs. And when Batty's excited about something, he spins. To show that he's celebrating something, either... Like, if I give him chicken, like, if I give him meat, he spins on his way to the dish. Often three times, at least twice... He does it if he's excited about other things too. Like if somebody he loves comes and visits, he does some spins. Just if any activity is is going to happen that Batty loves, he spins. And he used to do that. He doesn't do it as much anymore, but when we would come back from a walk... No, he still does do it sometimes. Now that I think about it, he does still do it. When we would come back from a walk, he would come home and spin. Just go around in a few circles. Like a little victory dance. But when I go upstairs to meditate, Batty runs. He runs ahead of me. And then he spins, and then he runs to where I sit. And then he immediately... It didn't used to be as... You know, he used to be, always be with me when I did it. Sitting, like, near me or next to me. But now he just gets right up on my lap and he gets into position right away and that's not typical like and then he he goes into a meditative state or a sleep i mean like some atheist would say he's just sleeping he's just happy to be on your lap and he's sleeping dogs like to sleep you ever heard of that someone would say that but there is something different about it because batty loves to be on my lap all the time anyway like if i'm on the couch he likes to be on my lap you know, he's, he's a lap dog. And if I sit down on the couch or I sit down somewhere, like he'll get on my lap, but he, he doesn't just fall into position right away. He will, he'll be awake. He'll, he'll be awake looking around, you know, and if he does sleep, who knows what position he'll take. But with meditation, he pretty much snaps into this position most of the time now and then immediately gets into that place. And I was thinking about like, you know, meditation, you know, because 
I've talked before about how like one of the big difficulties of it is that the act of simply sitting is so foreign to us because we're so entertained, we're so busy, we're so distracted, we're so stressed. The idea of simply sitting down is very foreign to us and difficult. But we know that we can sit anywhere all the time and people love to do it. I don't like to sit. The only time of day that I sit, aside from meditation, the only time of day that I actually, like, like at my house, the only time of day that I sit down is night. And that's reluctant. Sometimes it takes me a while to gear up for sitting down because I'm a pacer, I'm a stander, I'm a walker. You've heard that song. Um, but uh, sitting, uh, yeah. So, it, but it's not the act of sitting that people like. I, I think I, I think I'm a little wrong on that. It's not the act of sitting that is so difficult. Like when someone is experiencing internal misery in the waiting room of the doctor's office. It's not the fact that they have to sit down that bothers them. If they stood up, their condition wouldn't change. It's that your mind doesn't sit. It's, it's the sitting of your mind. And of course, there's, not, there's no little bench in there that your mind sits down on. But the way I would explain that, because you know, we have a tendency to view the world that way. You know, we have a tendency to view the world as uh, just through, through our own points of reference, and we do that with everything. It's impossible for us to understand things without our own points of re- reference, hence why we can't conceive of God without imagining man or something. Hence why when an animal does something, we see it in our own terms. Like something you'll see at the zoo... And I went to the zoo on the, the night of my, last time I went to the zoo was the night of my 35th birthday. And that was interesting because you got to see the animals, but they were mostly asleep. And they, the reason why we were able to go is they have a, a winter light show. Like they decorate the zoo with all these lights so you can go at night. You did see some animals, but I noticed it then like for the animals that were awake. And I've noticed it every time at the zoo ever since I was a kid, but... One things that tons of one thing that tons of parents say at the zoo to their kids is, "Look, he's doing this. He's just like us." You know, they they point out to their kids stuff the animal is doing that is human like, and they kind of put those human characteristics on it, and that's cool. Like that, that's a good thing. Like it's a good like I've heard people criticize that. Like there are certain people, and some of them are even animal lovers and wildlife people and naturalists. I've heard them get down on human beings for, you know, like applying human qualities to animals. Like somehow it's doing us and them a disservice. When really, I mean, it it makes you more empathetic toward the animals. You're relating to them. Like even if they're not thinking what you think when they're doing that thing that you can relate to the human experience. What are you even really thinking to be, you think your thoughts are that complex when you're doing it? Like, do you think your thoughts are that much more complex just because you're having all of these elaborate thoughts and you've abstracted whatever it is you're doing out, you know? So I think it's amazing when parents point that out, even though it's kind of a cliche, like you walk through the zoo and to be fair, I've been to the zoo very few times as an adult, maybe twice, Three times, four times, five times, six times. I go to the zoo every weekend. No, but uh, I've, I've been a few times. And I noticed this as a kid and I notice it now that like I can guarantee you at any given time, at any given exhibit, there is a dad. And it's often dads who do this, I think. There's a dad kneeling next to his little kid saying, see, he's, he's just hanging out in the hammock just like us. Oh, he's just like daddy on a summer day. Oh, see, see how the orangutan's sitting in the hammock? Isn't that just like daddy? Isn't that just like what I do? You know, and, and that's a beautiful thing, even though it's a cliche and you can kind of roll your eyes at that. It's a beautiful thing because it's like, it's like saying like, hey, look at that other creature doing something. It's kind of like us. But um, going back to meditation... You know, it's like, you know, your mind needs to sit. 
In reality, it's not you physically sitting that is that difficult. Yeah, it can be physically uncomfortable, but I mean, I don't sit in an uncomfortable position. You know, I occasionally have back issues. And so I don't sit on the floor. I, I don't sit in the lotus position. I will sit anywhere I need to, but I, I sit in a comfortable place. Because for me, it's not about, you know, yeah, I'm sure somebody has a good argument for why you should be in the load, the loadies, the load, the load position. I'm, you know, there's good explanations for that. But they're just explanations. And you can access that. You, know, you can participate in meditation no matter where you sit. And that's actually off-putting to people. You know, it's off-putting to people because they think you need to learn this whole physical side of it. Which I'm sure is important and people have good arguments for. But that's not actually what you need to do it. And I'm no master, but I know that much. But it's the sitting of the mind that's so hard. You can be sitting in the most comfortable place in the world and be tortured, but it's not the sitting that bothers you because uh, it's, it's the sitting of your mind that seems impossible to do, and we don't let our minds sit. And today, my friend Joe in England mentioned that Vangelis died, who I've never followed or listened to on my own. You know, obviously I know Blade Runner and I've heard his work. I've had friends who are Evangelist fans. Great stuff, you know, great. Um, but she mentioned that and uh, sent me a, a song. And so I, I ended up putting that on. All, uh, I listened to that song and then I ended up putting some more on and just had it playing throughout the house. It's an actual warm spring day after a string of cold days. And I was like, you know what, Because that's the thing is when I got into meditation, no music, no sound. I just wanted the, the full austere beauty of it, just the sounds around me. I think I, I meditated to William Samus, his solo album, which is kind of a keyboard, not kind of, it is a keyboard album. I've meditated to that, I meditated to that a few years ago. And uh, I, other than that, though, I don't put on music. But today, you know, I had this just this subtle evangelist, what we call a subtle evangelist playing in the background at my friend's recommendation. And I went up to meditate and I was like, I'm going to leave this on. Today seems like a good day to, to leave it on. And it was. And, you know, Batty went up there with me. And, you know, as I was kind of closing down or opening up uh, toward the end, I, I thought about this. I thought about like, you know, it's, it's, it's the sitting of the mind that is so difficult. And even just saying that sitting, it's like I'm, I'm relating to whatever that is through my own points of reference. I know that in order to relax, human beings sit down. In order to... to and by relax, I don't even mean mentally or psychologically. I mean literally. Like, what is relax? It means relieving tension or letting go of tension. Sitting down is relaxing because there is a tension with standing. And I'm someone who benefits from that kind of tension. Like, I like kinetic tension. You know, it's part of music, it, it's part of, you know, art, but it's part of so many things. Like, there is a good tension, and there is something motivating for me. Like, I am very productive when there's a certain tension. Not the tension of stress. Not the tension of duress. i turn this into a, a rhyming poem. But simply the tension, like, pacing around, being on my feet is a good kind of physical tension that does something for me mentally. So sitting, you know, you're literally relaxing physical tension when you do that. And meditation, while I don't always agree with the way that it's framed, and that's okay, who cares if I agree, 
it's you know letting go of mental tension, but it's not pleasure. It's not relaxation as in pleasure. It's relaxation. It's relaxation in the same sense that um, simply sitting down is relieving the physical tension of standing and walking. We think of relaxation as pleasure. Well, relaxing isn't that pleasurable for me on a daily basis. I don't get much pleasure when I relax. It's necessary. And it can be pleasurable, but I don't get much pleasure from simple relaxation. So when I say let your mind sit, and that being meditation, it's not relaxation as in pleasure. When you, really, when you let go of that tension, it's not a pleasurable thing. It's simply letting go of that tension. And I think what makes meditation what it what what it is, especially in a Zen, more of a Zen context, is letting go of that tension, but not turning relaxation into pleasure either. Which is why you're cautioned not to let yourself go to the movies too much when you meditate, or to not get attached to that, to not get attached to the sort of sensory stuff that starts to come into your mind, the visuals, the ideas. Because some very profound visuals and ideas will come to you. And I experienced that like fairly early on, which made me realize I needed to do this. But not so that I could get that visual or auditory aspect. Not that it's a full-on hallucination, but just this stuff kind of comes to you. And, you know, it's, it's almost like being in a dream-like state while you're awake. But that turns meditation into entertainment or pleasure. And follow your bliss. But that idea of letting off the tension, letting go of the tension that's in your mind without turning the relaxation of that tension into pleasure to me is where the balance is. And it's something we've all experienced. You don't have to call it meditation. Meditation is just a term somebody came up for something that happens and developed a discipline or practice to do that deliberately. And my earliest experiences that I remember are in my childhood home, we had this, what we called the living room. And because I could never figure, we had a living room and a family room. And the family spent all of our time in the living room. I guess family room was more like formal, like getting together officially as a family or something. That's where we would have like dinners and celebrations and stuff in the family room. But uh, I'd be sitting on the couch in my childhood living room and there was a certain spot where I, when I would look out the window, we had these French doors there, and when I would look out the window, I would just unfocus. I wasn't looking at anything in particular. I would just notice that when I looked there, my eyes kind of unfocused, my body relaxed, and I didn't think about anything. And it intrigued me, because I was like, what is that? And it, I'm not saying it was always the same exact spot. Some of it, you know, if, if you want to be a, a scientist about it, some of it could be like the angle that I was looking at in that exact position on the couch where I sat every night. But either way, that process happened in that spot when I was looking in that direction where I would just find that my, my mind sat and I sort of unfocused. And I was, I, I remember thinking about it long before I, I got into meditation and this kind of stuff. I would think about that experience because I've experienced it over and over again throughout my life in different times and places, like where you, you find your mind sitting, you find yourself relaxing, your mind relaxing without any pleasure, without any thoughts coming to you. And, and I would always think back to that spot that I would sit in as a kid and that would happen just for a little bit. It's not like I would sit there and cultivate it. It would just happen and I would notice it. And I always wondered, you know, what that was. And that is meditation. But you do it deliberately when you meditate. And you learn how to cultivate that. It's almost like learning how to look at a magic eye. Learning how to look at a magic eye picture. Which I'm not good at. I'm not good at those. 
but it's a similar process like that un- it's because it, it's like magic eye the way i understand it as someone who sucks at seeing them is like they always say to unfocus your eyes but you're also unfocusing your mind because your mind is processing all those globs of color and all those patterns and your mind is thinking about those so when your mind stops thinking you see this other thing emerge that's not actually rendered It's not actually rendered in an obvious way, at least. And so anytime you do that, anytime that happens, that is what meditation is. And meditation is just some description and practice that somebody developed for doing that. And people have different opinions. You know, I was talking about the the Lodi position, the Yogi Lodi. You know, people, there's people who are very adamant that that's necessary. And maybe it is for a certain process, but not mine. But, you know, yeah, it is interesting that Batman has, he knows what meditation is in some capacity. I don't, I don't say to him in baby talk, hey, baby, hey, bad, you want to meditate? Ready for meditation? I don't say anything at all. You should actually never announce that you're going to meditate. Unless you like live with somebody and you, you need to tell them, hey, I'm going to go in the other room and meditate. Don't bug me. Unless, unless it, there's a practical reason, unless it's necessary, I don't think you should ever let someone know you're going to meditate. And so I don't say it out loud to Batty. He simply knows that's what I'm going to do. And he celebrates and then he just gets in position. And... You know, going back though, I want to say some one last thought on like the idea of the mind sitting, like training your mind to sit because it doesn't sit. Even when you are physically sitting, your mind doesn't sit. And the closest some people come to this is like watching stuff, watching a movie. Oh, I'm not going to do anything else. I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm not going to like browse the internet, although people do that too. I imagine I'd be interested in knowing the data on that. I'd be interested in knowing how many people today just sit and watch TV or a movie without looking at their phone or a laptop. Because I don't watch movies. I don't watch shows typically. But I know that when I do on the rare occasion, I am doing other things. Um, just to... Just, you know, so it's so it's like, but even if I wasn't, even if I wasn't, I would still be taking in this story or movie. So training your mind to sit, your mind doesn't actually sit. There isn't a little entity in your head that I know of that is going to sit down on a bench in your brain. But I'm relating to it in my own terms, just like someone at the zoo looks at an animal and says, He's just, see the way, dude, look at the way, look at the way the, the orangutans uh, sleeping in the hammock. Doesn't that remind you of daddy? You know, just like people do that. That's what I'm doing with my mind. I'm like, I'm like, because my mind, it, it is, as much as it is mine, it is a foreign entity. Most people's, everyone's mind is as foreign as it is familiar. Otherwise, you know, the world would be a lot different. And as a result, though, like I can only understand relieving tension mentally, which is to not think about things because thought, whether good or bad, produces tension. And so I I relate to that by saying my mind has to sit, too. And that's just one way to understand it. It's not wrong. It's not right. It's just one way to describe it or understand it. It's almost like. If somebody showed you a machine that was broken and they said, how could I get this to work? Or maybe it's not even broken. Let's just say somebody showed you a machine that's not running and they said, can you get this started? You've never seen this specific machine before. Well, if you look at parts of it and you say, well, I've seen these parts on another machine and I know that if I turn this and push this, those machines will start running. So if I look at this machine and I see similar parts, well, those parts probably work similarly, if not the same. And I I shouldn't treat it like the other machine. 
what we call treating it like the other machine. You treating it like the other. You just you you treating me like you treat your other machines. No, you don't. You don't have to treat it like it's the other machine, but you can look at the familiar parts and be like, well, if we get that machine working that way, this one might work similarly. That's at least part of it. So your mind sitting is not you physically sitting. There's no little man in your brain who sits. But that's like, a, a, there's a familiar part of that machine is what I'm getting at. And speaking of machines, I had a thought because I'm trying to sell some furniture on Craigslist. And it's not just Craigslist, it's, all, it's everything. It's, I mean, people are talking about bots all the time. And they don't even realize they're living in a science fiction world. Maybe some people do, but the amount that we have to contend with bots and, and, you know, speaking of evangelists and Blade Runner, like not knowing who's a bot and who's not. That's one of the dilemmas of phone calls, internet. We're basically at a point where any interaction with somebody that you're not looking at face to face, and we might be getting there soon, but any interaction you have with a what you think is another person that's not face to face, you have to question now whether it's a bot or not. And it could be a real person, but if they're a scammer or if they're trying to get something out of you, they might as well be a bot too, because they're just using a script or a formula, which is what a bot uses. But we're living in a world now where it's like you're contending with bots all the time. And a lot of them aren't bots. And that's where that's where technology has won the, the sci-fi war so far. Uh, they've won a lot of battles in this in this area where the fact that we have to question whether an email, a phone call, a text message is from a human or a bot, a comment online. The fact that we have to question that. When you get a Facebook ad request and you have to question whether or not it's a bot, the machines have won that battle. I've talked about this before with CAPTCHA. I had an epiphany one day where I was like, oh, the fact that CAPTCHA is universal on every single form online means the bots have won. They've won that battle. The fact that we're inconvenienced and not just the click here to prove you're not a bot, like the fact that you have to now like click, click every box with a train in it. The fact that you have to put effort and you have to think. There's one, there's a new one that I've seen lately where you have to like drag a puzzle piece and make it fit in order to complete the form. The amount of time that takes. The amount of precision even it takes. Like you have to you have to put a you have to put the piece exactly where it should go. It's not hard, but you have to be precise. And selling things on Craigslist, this is only my second time doing it. You hear from bots, and I know they're bots because they all say the same thing. You get the same exact message. There's there's when you list something on Craigslist, the first person you hear from is somebody who says the same exact thing. They say, I'd like to pick this up. Is that your final price? And are you the original owner? And then if you reply to them, they're like, Well, just send me your bank account information and my husband will have to wire the money over tonight. Cause I'm they they always have some story like that. The bots. And I've noticed a huge increase in the number of bots contacting me through my website contact form. I have this website contact form, and I I put some kind of script in the code that's supposed to weed out bots. And since I relaunched my website last year, I don't get any contact from bots. What I do get that's strange is around like 4 or 5 in the morning every single day, somebody submits the form, but it's completely blank, which is not supposed to happen. Like it's coded so that you have to put in name and information. But somehow a bot is able to trigger the contact form every single morning, right around the same time. And it's completely blank. I assume that's a uh, crawler. I assume that's one of the bots that crawls daily for the search engine because they're not, they don't send me anything. They just trigger the form. But in the last few weeks, I've started getting spam through that contact form. 
and they use realistic email addresses now. And they're all like, do this and you'll make a thousand dollars an hour. They're all those types of scams. Sign up here for this and you can make a thousand dollars an hour doing nothing. But, uh, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden I've gotten a ton more of those. And at the same exact time, I've started getting these texts, which I never got in the past. I've never gotten bot, like once or twice I've gotten text messages from bots somehow. But while this started happening with the contact form on my site, I've suddenly started getting these text messages. They're like, I'd like to buy your house. That's a big one these days. It's a lot of the spam, the spam, uh, like physical junk mail I get in the mailbox. You have to clarify these days what kind of, where, where are you getting your junk mail? Is it real or is it physical? But the physical junk mail I get, a lot of it's these scams. And I mentioned before, like that chameleon, that uncanny valley effect of the writing they use, where a lot of these junk mail scams, they send you a letter and they use a font that looks at first glance like handwriting. Because, you know, whenever we get mail that has handwriting on it, we're like, it's personal. It's important. It's, it, this, is, this is a human wrote this. So even if you don't know who it's from, if you see what you think is handwriting, you're going to prioritize that mail or give it special attention. And so what these scammers have been doing for a while, for years now, is they, they choose a font that looks kind of like handwriting. If you look at it twice, you see that it's just one of those handwriting fonts. You're like, oh, the J's are the same. The J's are the same. But at second glance, you're like, oh no, it's, this is bullshit. But a lot of it is, it's like, it's like these, these real estate scams are big. And lately I've started getting those though through my phone, which never happened. And I haven't submitted my information anywhere. There's been no change. Like I didn't sign up for something. I didn't put my information out there publicly in a new way. But all of a sudden this started happening with my contact form on my website, which never, it didn't happen once. Since I launched my new website, ericstonefelt.com. Since I launched that, like, I don't know, a little over a year ago, year and a year and change ago, I, I never got a single spam email through the contact form because I deliberately coded it that way. I deliberately coded it that way. And in the last month, let's say, three weeks to a month, multiple a day, just if I check the junk email folder, there's just a ton of spam through my contact form. And right when that starts happening, I start getting these text messages, these real estate scam text messages. I start getting phone calls that are a real estate scam. They've never done any of this stuff. So I don't know what happened recently, but it seems like the bots are making a move. They're, they're, there's, a new, uh, they're, there's a new effort on the, on the part of the bots or whoever controls them, whoever set them loose. That's kind of what happened. Because whenever I think about bots, it's easy to forget that a human is responsible. A human is responsible for this. Just like in sci-fi movies, like, you know, just like uh, term, Terminator. A human is responsible. They might not be responsible for every single thing the bot is doing, but they made them and then set them loose in the world. But I was thinking about this, which is interesting, like, you know, because everyone's always talking about, like, at what point do bots become sentient? And then how do we separate them from people? Well, I was thinking about, like, doing online commerce or Craigslist. And I'm, I'm dealing with somebody right now who wants to buy something from me, but is taking their time when it comes to responding. And I, you know, it's one of those things that like gives you immense anxiety when somebody's interested in buying something, but isn't finalizing it and, you know, hasn't followed through yet. And I was thinking about people who don't pay like on eBay. On eBay, when somebody doesn't pay you, like they buy your item, but they don't pay you, what's the difference in your mind between them and a bot? 
What makes them not a bot is that they follow through on the transaction. But when somebody just contacts you and wastes your time, or they buy something from you online and doesn't pay and they waste your time, as far as you're concerned, you're not in the same room with them. They're not somebody coming into your store, walking around with a basket of stuff, who then puts it back and doesn't pay before they leave. You don't see a human. You have no human interaction. On eBay, they're a screen name. And so when somebody buys something from you and doesn't pay, they're functionally being a bot. They're giving you a little notification. They're, they're basically giving you spam. And they're getting your hopes up because, you know, you want, <laughs> you, want, you want them to pay you. And so same thing with Craigslist. Like where even if it's a real person who contacts you, if they express interest or, or want something and they don't follow through, they're functionally acting like a bot. And so with that in mind, like if we reach a point where the bots themselves are buying things from you online and paying you, I think they're not bots anymore. I think the second that like a bot buys something from you on eBay and pays you, I don't know if I can consider that a bot. <laughs> not that it's all about money. I'm just saying it's about follow through. It's about responsibility, like, like responsible bots. That's going to be the name of this episode, responsible bots. Because once bots become responsible, because as they are, they're, they're extremely irresponsible. They're either trying to steal your information, your money, they're trying to waste your time. And they're not going to be responsible with any of that. Like if a bot steals your time, your money, or your information, they're not going to be responsible with it. They're not going to be like, okay, I took this guy's personal info. I took this guy's credit card info. I took this guy's, you know, personal information. I'm just going to keep it to myself. I'm, I'm one of those bots who just collects information and keeps it to myself or uses it for a good cause. Oh, I got this guy's credit card info. I'm going to pay off his credit card debt. These bots aren't responsible with your information. But if bots started being responsible, like if there were bots who contacted you and you know were like, I want to buy this, and they give you the money, I'm going to start to wonder, you know, I might start to see these as a, as a different category of being that isn't, uh, isn't entirely inorganic. Responsible bots. I mean, just before I close out on this beautiful Sunday, one last thought I had about meditation is this morning, Batty went outside on the back deck. And as he does in the sun, he stretches out and relaxes and soaks it in. Chihuahua, he's got that Mexican, he's got Mexican genetics. He needs that sun. And uh, I went out there with him and I unconsciously noticed that I, I was just looking at the woods behind my house and I stretched my arms up and like, you know, that stretch you do where you like put your fingers together and you know, press your, your hands up and you kind of stretch your back and your arms. And it crossed my mind. I was like, oh shit, my mom used to do that out here every single morning. Like when I moved in with her before she died, every morning when we would both get up, we would both walk out on the back deck. You know, it was, it was pretty much unspoken. At, at the most, my mom would say, oh, hey, you want to come out here with me? It was never like, hey, we're going outside to to meditate. My mom didn't meditate in the, in the formal sense, but she used to tell me that like every single morning she would wake up and lay in bed for a while without falling back asleep and just kind of let her mind sit. You know, in, in meditation, they tell you not to be laying down probably because it's too much like sleep. You're supposed to be prost prostate prostrate. Those words are too similar, prostate and prostrate. Probably the most confused words in the world. But my mom, uh, you know, she said that she used to lay there and like, yeah, you're not, they say you're not supposed to do that because it's like, it's too much like sleeping for whatever reason, you're supposed to be upright. And that makes sense to me. But who's to say, you know, if you can meditate laying down, it doesn't change the fact that your mind is doing 
what's called meditation. So my mom said she would wake up every day and just stay in bed and she would just let her mind relax. And I was like, that is meditation. You know, that, how is that any different? But then she would wake up and like when I was living with her, we would both just go out on the back deck every morning. There's a patch of woods back there. And we would both just, I would drink my coffee and she would just, she would always just stretch her arms up with her hands locked together. And then she would stretch her arms down behind her back with her fingers locked together. And I unconsciously realized I was doing that when I was out there with Batty this morning. And there's a spot too, you know, kind of like that spot in my childhood house. There's actually a spot in the woods. And I think the trees that there were these two branches that used to cross in an X. And if I looked at those, I found that my mind went into a meditative state. I didn't just stand there and stare at it and meditate, but I noticed that that would happen when I looked at that spot. I imagine it happens a lot when someone looks at the woods. I mean, there's a reason people go to the woods to... I mean, the woods are a good example of people not physically relaxing, but mentally relaxing. People, a lot of people go to the woods for mental relaxation. Their body's tense because it's, it's hiking, it's moving. But their mind is in a different place. Their mind doesn't have that same tension. But my, my mom and I would look out there and I just, I noticed that I was doing that stretch that my mom did. My arms are kind of sore. I just unconsciously did the exact same stretch she did. Not as a tribute, although I'm certainly happy with it being one. But I didn't do it as a tribute. I just noticed that I was doing it. Something kind of compelled me to do that. Batty was laying on his side, just loving it. Eyes closed, just loving the sun. And I just did that stretch. And I realized like what my mom and I would do, like we didn't plan it. I'm, when I was living with her, there were many days where we didn't do that. But if we were both up around the same time and downstairs in the kitchen, we would both go out there and just take in the woods and just stand for a second. That's meditation. It doesn't have to be formal. Because meditation, you know, that's just a word. Like I always say this about these terms, especially spiritual terms, where these are placeholder words. We've come up with words for things, and then now we can't separate the word from the thing. And it sounds pretentious when you say, oh, my mom and I used to go out on the back deck and look at the woods, and she would stretch, and I would drink my coffee, and that was meditation. Like, you sound pretentious, and that's not what we were doing. Like, never did we state that that's what it was, but we both kind of understood that's what it was. And so the word doesn't matter. The formal practice doesn't matter. There was something, it developed organically, but there was something ritualistic about it. So that, I think that's an important part of this is, is, I have this little like tiny, it's not a post-it note. It's like a, uh, I have this little booklet that has like tabs you can put in books, like little strips of paper that are sticky on one end so you can mark pages in books. And I had that thought about bots that I just uh, mentioned. And I, so I have this little note, this little tab that just says bots on it. But you know what? It's the sound of me throwing it out. I don't, I don't need a little tab on it that says bots. You better save that. You better save that. Um... But yeah, my final thought on that is that like once bots start buying things from you online and actually paying you, following through, they might not be bots anymore. And people who buy things from you or, or try to get something from you or try to make a deal with you and don't follow through might as well be bots. But uh, with the meditation idea, just the last thought is just that it's, that's a placeholder word for something that you probably have done or caught in a glimpse of in your life without knowing it was meditation or calling it meditation. And people think meditation has to be so formal. And my, you know, my meditation practice is 
as far as my life goes right now, like I do need to sit in a specific place, in a specific posture, repeat certain mantras. I do need to do that. But you're doing what you're trying to access, what the state of mind, letting your mind sit is something that you've experienced your entire life at select moments, but you think so much that it's rare. So something to keep in mind, this is something that comes natural to you if you let it. And even a moment. You know, I can't remember the quote. It's, it might be from... I've read it on here before. I don't remember the source offhand. But there's the quote. You know, like even a, even a, a single second of Zen meditation is, you know, enough to undo. Okay, what's the, I wish I could remember. I'm going to look it up. This, this is an important quote. I've read it before, but I want to get it right. 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 I don't know, just... Um, be, uh, see, I couldn't find it, but I, I remember the part of it that I wanted to get right. It's, you know, even a single moment of Zen meditation can undo beginningless crimes. Beginningless crimes. So even when you get that brief moment, me as a little kid sitting on the couch and there was just one part of the window where if I looked there, that general direction, it wasn't like one tiny little thing I had to look at. It was that general direction. I found that I would unfocus and not think. And it was, it blew my mind at the time that that, just to feel that, just to have that. And so that's one moment. People get competitive, they get strict. It's like you have to sit for 35 minutes and 30 seconds and set a timer. You have to get through this entire mantra this many times. I do that. I, you know, I have my own little version of that kind of stuff. But no, that one moment where you find yourself unfocusing, that one moment where you find your mind sitting, you know, you can undo beginningless crimes that easily, that quickly, that simply. This land is mine, God gave this land to me, this brave, this golden land to me, and when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free.